Greetings vinylers and vinylettes. This week's show of the Aberdeen Vinyl Records podcast is our second ever, and we're very fortunate and very proud to have one of Scotland's greatest ever exports. You might say he's a marvel. As you know, the link between all our guests is that they have some kind of connection to our shop, and this guy's actually been in our shop before. This guy's worked with people like Angelina Jolie, Morgan Freeman, Colin Firth, Samuel L. Jackson, James McAvoy, and us. And so there's a whole history of superheroes involved here. In fact, Netflix wanted to secure this Kingsman to kick ass in the TV world to secure a legacy for him. Welcome to the Aberdeen Vinyl Records podcast. This is uh, another in our series of 12 that we're doing in season one. And uh, as you know, the link is uh, we're having uh, famous and relatively famous people on the show who've got a connection to music or connection to the shop in some way or other. Our next guest has actually been in the shop, Mark Miller. You came up to the shop, if I remember right, for my stag night. You weren't there, I, I sneaked in. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the missing records are. a ton of great stop. Me and my pal got a ton of great stop. <laughs> All the way back to Glasgow. <laughs> so Mark Miller is a, a writer of comics, a maker of films, and uh, a, a kind of unconscious comedian, except for he's, he's unconscious certainly a lot of the time. That's for knowledge. I'll edit that out. But, uh, so uh, many of you will know Mark, but for those of you who don't, uh, that's what Mark does. Um, many of the things he's done include things like Kingsmen, the movie, uh, Kick-Ass, the movie, as well as being head writer at Marvel for many years, as well as doing his own company, Miller World, and now is working exclusively with Netflix, having sold his company to it. Correct so far? All good. All good. Uh, like Netflix, I flogged my company to them three years ago. And then when everybody, anybody with any sense, would have thought I am away a long holiday and all that. I took two weeks off, went to, was it Mallorca we went to? Yeah. I went to Mallorca for two weeks and then started a new job, like as, as uh, president of this division at Netflix. But it's so fun. It's great. It's like Hollywood in the 20s, you know, where everybody's <laughs> making up as they're going along. And it's, Apart from all the scandal, I wish there was a wee bit more scandal, but there's, there's no scandal around. It's like, Hollywood, it's like Hollywood in the 20s in terms of kind of somebody just says, hey, I've got this idea for this thing, and some guy with a cigar is like, go make it! You know, it feels a bit like that, which I love, you know. Very good. Excellent. That's superb. Excellent. And um, one of the things that we talk about on this show, of course, is music. And when you were growing up, if I remember right, you were saying to me the other day that some of the music you listened to wasn't officially cool, but you liked it nonetheless. Well, do you know it's weird? Like, I'm now 51, and I can now sort of admit what I like. You know, like... <laughs> I'll give you a super fast story. When I was, here's my level of cool, right? When I was 15, the Smiths were playing in Edinburgh Playhouse. And uh, I was in Edinburgh for the day just by chance. I didn't go and see them. And then we ended up at this party. Um, that Johnny Marr was at, right? Like, um, and it was one of those things. Like, I mean, I never got invited to cool stuff. I, I it just, I, I stumbled into this thing, right? And like, uh, I got chatting with Johnny Marr, and I was so uncool, I didn't realize who he was, right? And he was oh. saying to me, and I was chatting with him, and I said, So, what was it you do? And he says, Oh, I'm in a band called The Smiths. And I was like, You're going to have to change your name, mate. It's <laughs> no, you're <laughs> you joking, mate. Is that what happened? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and, and, and my pals, it was like the Kennedy assassination. They all jumped on me and pulled <laughs> me out of the party. <laughs> oh, no. Did you become their manager and hold up their career for a couple of years before they kind of... <laughs> How did he react? What did he say? 
he was so nice. He was actually just, oh, right, okay, cool. You know, but he, he must have thought you were taking a piss. <laughs> Surely. No, I, I, I think I, I looked like a guy who would not be sussed enough to take a piss. <laughs> I think he just, he saw me as like, you know, just the village idiot kind of thing. I think. A square <laughs> band. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so I was so unaware of bands and I was so unaware of anything cool around that. Because I think you almost only have time for one passion, don't you? You know, it's like, it's the way that, you know, if you're a really brilliant guitarist and you're sitting practicing your guitar at age 14, 15, 16 and everything, you don't have time to become a chess master. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're thinking about your guitar all the time. So all my pals eventually grew out of comics. When they were about 12 or 13, they grew out of it. And I used to force it on them. I'd say, oh, there's a great new Batman book out you guys would really like. And I'd try and get them to read this stuff. But by that point, they were into bands. And... I, I was so hyper aware that I had no taste in bands. I, they were thinking about music all the time in the way that I was thinking about comics all the time. And, yeah, and yeah. films was maybe my backup, you know, that I liked films as well. But these were just like super into music. So I, I hung out with a bunch of guys who, who loved music. And in a weird way, that made me have something to compare my bad taste to because I could see <laughs> what cool taste was, you know. Like I was aware of what cool people liked. You know, and yeah. I could just then have the reflection of my own. <laughs> so terrible. Now, I remember my record collection was always so rubbish, and it still is, but my record collection was so garbage that I remember you and pals would come around to your house and also we look through your LPs and everything, you know, to see what you've got. And you just see people <laughs> lean over and look at three or four and go, oh, for God's sake. Just... <laughs> <laughs> it was like... I remember in school once somebody saying, what's your favourite album? It was one of those chats around the class, and I was like, have you heard now that's what I call music for? It's <laughs> and they were saying, uh, well, why do you like that? And I said, you get 32 songs. 32 songs for, for eight quid. It's absolutely amazing. That's the Scottish coming through in you right there. That's, that's what that is. That was the lack of quality. And, and the things, thereof. As I as irony, as irony goes, the now albums sell extremely well. Ah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The, the now really? one, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, ahead of my time. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you did no good music after all. <laughs> well, can I just quickly ask, just because you've mentioned, you mentioned that you've, you've still got a rubbish record collection, which means you've got yeah. a record collection. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's no doubt, you know, you've got a massive comic collection. And it's one thing, you know, I, I was maybe even wanting to loosely sort of see what you, what your opinion was. There's There's a great connection there's a huge similarity between comic collectors and vinyl collectors they're die hard they'd they'd stave a month's rent to get the right yeah. copy or the right pressing or do, do you know what i mean they'd really stick oh, their yeah. neck out and they're so passionate about it they're actually two of one they're really identical they look after it they're all about yes. the quality of it they're all about the you know all the minor details that nobody knows so yeah. you've got two collections and respectfully you've got enough money to hoard two massive collections what is your vinyl collection like what are you talking are you talking oh you my got God. 50 you got 100 you got a thousand it's a Do you still collect it's quality not quite about 50 about, about 50 yeah i think my oldest daughter about five years ago um you know when vinyl like students were getting into vinyl yeah and yeah. it was kind of the return of a vinyl shop maybe five mm -hmm. six seven years ago my oldest daughter was like oh great I'm going to have a look at my dad's record collection and there'll be some gems in here, you know? And I think it was, you know that, like, historically, it was always when a son was strong enough to best his father in, in a fight, you know? It was kind of like that when they lose respect to you, you know? And she was just enough 
to look at my record collection and think, oh my God, like you, you're the guy who taught me how to walk and talk. <laughs> and, and, and it was, I think she was like, there's literally nothing here I would even listen to. So now, now, now that's what I call music for. <laughs> I'd often like, I'd always buy something that had a wee tie into something I liked and it was usually like a film. So a great album, which I do love is Flash Gordon, you know, the Queen album. I do love yeah. Queen. Queen's yeah. like my yeah. all time favorite band. And the Flash Gordon album, um, but then it's besides, you know, the music of Indiana Jones or something like that, you know, and then it's besides, you know, best adverts and things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. like, so it's all this kind of stuff, you know. But I, I do genuinely love that stuff. And there's a, a really brilliant radio show that I've never found anybody in music who's into what I'm into and plays what I like, right? But I found a radio show that's awesome on Radio 6 International. And one of my friends owns the channel, right? And he he um, he's in his seventies now. He's early seventies, and he he's got a show on Friday nights at seven o'clock called the Lively Lounge, right? Have you guys heard of this? No. Nope. It's a kind of light jazz show, and it's things like incidental music from Scottish television while you were uh, having your breakfast, waiting for TV to come on, and everything when you're a kid. <laughs> things yeah. like that. <laughs> You'll play an extended mix of this for three minutes or six minutes or something, you know. Then it'll be a theme tune from a show you vaguely remember from your childhood and all that, you know. Then, you know, just every, every single thing is so eclectic and crazy. It's the best radio show in the world, and it's the closest I've ever come to think. You know the way people felt when they discovered, like, John Peel or Annie Nightingale or something, that they, mm, they had a relationship yeah. with a radio show? Yeah. I, I never felt that. All my pals used to listen to John Peel, and I'd be like, so nobody wanted to come out and play the professionals or something. No. <laughs> Listening to John Peel, you know. <laughs> we're, we're getting off with somebody, you know. <laughs> and, and, and this shows the closest I've ever come to this is my this is my people, you know. <laughs> who, who runs that show? Uh, Tony Curry. Tony Curry. Don't yeah, he's, he's an absolute legend. He's amazing. And that's on in Fridays, is it? Friday night, seven o'clock. Yeah, repeated yeah. on Saturday mornings at nine nine a.m. And I was actually so mad, like the kids needed something on Friday, and then somebody phoned me uh, on Saturday, so I'm early in the morning, and I missed both shows. And I was like, oh, so they've got a repeat showing on Sunday morning at seven a.m. And I set my alarm last week for seven a.m. To get up and listen to this show, that's how much I like it. It's a one-hour show. It's wow. I guess it kind of sums up how music can play a great big part in um, mental association of like previous times and everything. Because yeah. you're listening to that stuff and it's not a tune as such, but it's like almost like a memory you're listening to. Nostalgia. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, because it's evocative, isn't it? You know, like that's it. and I never quite understood why audio was sometimes more powerful than audio and visual together. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes no sense. Like, as somebody, when I spend my day in film and in television and everything, right, so I'm sitting watching cuts of our show now for the last two months, like, every day sitting watching this stuff. But then I heard an audio recording. Somebody sent me an audio recording of Marlon Brando um, doing something that he was, it was kind of out, audio outtakes. And it was really fascinating because you actually felt like you were there with him. I know yeah. way that strangely when you see visual, you don't. It's almost like you're eavesdropping on something or he's in the room with you when it's audio. But when you see the visual, you've immediately got a screen separating you and mm-hmm. there's a disconnect. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, I think I'm only now in middle age understanding the power of radio. Yeah. 
There's I think it's similar to the thing, you know, like uh, there's the whole thing, if you lose one sense, you, you slightly heighten others. So, for example, if, yeah. if, you know, if somebody's blind and um, that, that sight's yeah. gone, so their hear over time becomes heightened and strengthened or yeah. they're, they're more in they're more in tune with that because that's their main sense. Yeah, um, that's and the that's, default. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So there's less distraction. So you're more tuned into it. Um, so as soon as you take the visual away, then you're just left with that. So you can... You soak into that world, you delve Absolutely. into it, and it yeah. tunes right into you. You know it's one, and there's not that that yeah. third distraction of visual that then sort of yeah. takes away from that. Well, that, that distraction of visual, that's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember uh, when video was first coming out, Mark? Um, video was like, uh, it was almost like a distraction for people like me who grew up with just the radio and just the vinyl. Yeah. And suddenly people just start doing videos. Yeah. A lot of people say, look at the video. They say, well, hang on, listen to the music. It's shite. Well, maybe they, maybe they did the videos because the songs were shite in order to, <laughs> to sell them. You know? It could be. Do you remember having a favourite video, Mark, a music video? Uh, everybody always says Michael Jackson thriller. But do you remember any from back in the day? Uh, that's like a crime scene now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased. I always hated Michael Jackson, and it was great to finally have a reason to hate Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, oh, like videos. I mean, probably around about eighty-one, I started becoming aware of videos, and and it became one of those chats in classes. You know, the top of the pops was going to be on, and you were going to see the new whoever's video. Yeah. And that was a wee event, wasn't it? it That's was right. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, but probably about 81, I think it started. And then I think by about 87, 88, videos were starting to go again, weren't they? It was That's like, right. All the really good guys all jumped into film. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the great film, uh, film directors came from those 80s music videos. That's it. That's right. Um, but it was, a, it was a weird little period, wasn't it, where the, yeah. the video, like an advert almost, you know, the video was bigger. Yeah. Than the mm -hmm, song. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes, the like, video uh -huh, you know, promotes the song, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you're saying about aha? Yeah. Uh -huh? uh, do you remember the aha uh -huh video that everybody remembers? Take that? on me. Take yeah. on me video. Yeah. You know, or, or the Godly and Cream one. And yeah. what was really interesting with the Godly and Cream one, it was I think it was the first time ever, I think, that the morphing effect was ever used on camera. Like, wow. you know the idea of like, you know the T one thousand and Terminator yeah, yeah, two? Yeah. The way that Robert Patrick would morph into the the T one thousand, yeah, that the, the uh, Godling Cream video predated that by yeah. quite a while, and you do see that now with adverts. The technology will sometimes be tried out in an advert, mm -hmm. and then somebody will then use it later in a film because um, mm -hmm. the advert has to catch your eye with something, and then it can be utilised later. The, sometimes the funding will be co-funded and things like that too. It's quite interesting. Well, probably but, be less cost for an advert than it would be for a film. So if you were going to try it, it's it's a smaller investment to trial it. The actual technology. I've even heard of some film guys investing in the ad to see how it goes and everything as well. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. And then I'll use it, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting. So it's a weird little period, you know, where everybody can remember a good dozen videos, you know, that are probably the equivalent of what a viral would be now, you know, like in, in the last 10 years, you know, all, all the internet stuff that came on social media that everybody remembers the wee kid in the back of the car coming home from the dentist and stuff like that, you know. Music videos are a bit like that, aren't they? There's, there's about 12 that literally yeah. everybody... Yeah, yeah. In, yeah, absolutely. I think Ridley Scott came from that uh, video games, yeah. everything, didn't he? Well, he video, did adverts, um, loads of adverts. Videos. He did ads in the 60s. Oh, yeah. hundreds, ah. hundreds of them. He, did, he, yeah. he actually did Z cars before that as well. Was that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, a, and the Z car spinoff, it was called, what was it, Softly Softly or something? Yeah, that's right. That rings a bell. <laughs> like, so he did, Ridley Scott did um, 
he made like five thousand adverts or something. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, adverts the money. Adverts. Adverts. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, see, especially back in the day when people used to watch adverts, you know, like the money in adverts was insane. You know, so Ridley's company made way more doing that stuff than you could ever make from films and everything. You know, yeah. so like he, you know, he came came through that. His brother Tony Scott did pop pop videos as well, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of great filmmakers, David Fincher came from pop videos. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Mark's got a, a Mark's got a, a strong interest in uh, affection for these 1970s TV shows, haven't you? Yeah. I totally <laughs> am obsessed with them. Like see if, see if I've got a 10 minute break, I'll watch like 10 intros for 1970s television shows. Where I love a <laughs> it's like, I don't know what it's total comfort food for me. You know, I love it. <laughs> so you're not even interested it. in the plot. No, no, I hate the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Just give I me the intro. <laughs> I mean, Bob and I have got a mutual friend. Like we've got a wee gang, right? It's like this. This is maybe the first time this has ever gone public. But we've got a wee gang called the Giffnick Dads, right? Uh-huh. Lived, yeah, yeah. At the time, we all lived in the south side of Glasgow in an area called Giffnick, and there was a living of us originally. And we would go. The, the idea was. We were going. To, I think originally we were going to be some five sides team or something like that, and that never happened. And then we started going to the pub. And the first Thursday of every month, we just got together and we had a pint. And to this day, we we still do it. I mean, we, we were the dads of all the kids in this particular year in primary one in school. And we all just really got on. We started talking at the school gates and got on really well. And then uh, we, we would do this, you know. And another guy there who became one of our closest friends is Johnny Wilson. Johnny Wilson. Who is an amazing musician and just like a super fun guy and everything, you know. He was in a band years ago called Altered Images. I got out of music about maybe 20 years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. in fact, he even toured America with a heavy metal yeah. band, didn't he? In fact, he's really amazing. I mean, Johnny's encyclopedic. And he's a guy that's into all the same stuff that I'm into. Although he's into everything, right? He's got the most amazing knowledge of music. But um, he put me on to a lot of stuff that he knew I would like. And that took me down that lively lounge route. Yeah. Between yeah. And, everything. and Johnny used to make me up these wee CDs. They were absolutely brilliant. And it would be something, it was insane. It was like the Paddington theme music. <laughs> then going into it. A Herb Alpert trumpet thing from Bill <laughs> and then you know, and Bert Bacharach blended with the Mister Men and all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And, and I was like, I've never heard a fourteen-minute version of the Mister Men theme tune before. <laughs> oh my God. Johnny has all this stuff. <laughs> he has everything. That's right. Amazing. If I remember, you used to write to to that as as your soundtrack when you're writing. Sometimes, if I remember right, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very hard to see if you're writing dialogue. It's really hard to hear lyrics because it interferes with your dialogue, you know, so you can't help but get pulled out of what you're working on. The instrumental is actually very good because it just mm-hmm. sets the mood, really, you know, and it means your 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 dialogue's not getting interfered with. And Johnny used to make me these wee things, and I'd meet him when we'd all talk at the school gates when we were picking up the kids at the end of the day, and Johnny would say, listen, I've made you up an amazing remix of the... Uh, the, you know the Ari Bean Surf tune. Wait, you hear that? <laughs> 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 and I've got them all, but absolutely brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. That was something else I was going to ask. Actually, like, do you, do you see when you're when you're working, um, whether it's story, whether it's whatever it is, uh-huh. is, is there any music that inspires you? Obviously, you've just it makes so much sense. You don't listen to stuff with lyrics because that'll get very uh-huh. confusing. Or have you even like heard a piece of music and then maybe went? Oh, you know something that would be really cool in a fight scene between here or or something. Does the music ever come first for inspiration, or does it inspire you? At always all goes the other way. Always it goes always the other goes way. backwards. Yeah, you think of a scene and then you think what music suits that. You so you've, you have, have you done that before? You finished the scene. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah well, oh, that song would be brilliant right there. Yeah, yeah. and and it might not uh, end yeah. up being that song. 
You know, you uh-huh. might not get the rights to it. Yeah, yeah. Made, that's a terrible idea or whatever. But like, uh, but you can't help having a wee idea. Sorry, hang on. One of my kids is trying to talk to me. Was yeah. It? Oh, the charger. I think it's there in the kitchen. I, I, I don't know how. I'm not sure. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> the iPad in the house has become the most valuable. It's like, you know, the way cigarettes are in prison. The kids would cut each other's throats. <laughs> Five minutes on the iPod. It's unreal. <laughs> I, I totally get that as well. I, I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> so we were saying, but like, I'll tell you a really interesting thing, actually. I was talking to a director a couple of weeks ago, and it's for a new television show that we're doing. And I, I said to him, listen, I can't get this out of my head. I was, I said, you've got to listen to this show called The Lively Lounge on Friday nights, right? I says, and he's out, he's in Paris just now, right? And I was saying, you'll love this. I says, but there was a wee piece of music played on it from a 1975 TV themes album, right? And what's really fascinating about this is it's a double album. We have about 30 songs on it or something. Like that. So I say songs, instrumental pieces of music. And there was one that was never a theme tune. And it was a wee bit of a cheat to put it on an album called TV Themes. So it was on there with Kojak and well, Starsky and Hutch and all these classic themes, right? And then there was one, and it was just called something like Mystery Mystery Lounge or something like that, or Mystery Music or something like this, right? And I loved it. I thought, this is amazing. So I phoned up Tony, um, who played it, the DJ, and I says, what is that? You know, and he told me the story behind it. And he says, it's weirdly a TV theme that was never, ever used as a TV theme. And I said, I want to use it. And there's a, and it's from 1975, right? So there's a weird magic to that, isn't there? That something new was going to be a TV theme tune 45 yeah. years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's ended up at the, and it'll probably be the biggest out of them all, you know, because it's wow. going to be a, net, a Netflix TV theme uh-huh. tune. You know, That's fantastic. So what I did was I sent it to the, the director that we're, we're talking to for the first couple of episodes. And I said to him, look, we haven't even started on the, the scripts for the show yet. I says, before we hire the writers, what do you think of this as a theme tune for this show? And I played them and I sent them some visuals. I sort of edited a thing together with some visuals that was that really suited it. And it's a magic show. So it's all playing cards and all this kind of stuff and silhouettes of people dancing. Like, a bit like Tales of the Unexpected. Kind of that, that's yeah. Cool. yeah. Played with this 1975 TV team. And he was like, this is perfect. So what we're going to do is when all the writers start working in the writer's room in about six weeks' time, they're going to see the credit sequence for the show and hear the tune before they start writing the script. So they know the story of the show. And I don't think that's ever been done before in, you know, 70 years of television. I don't think that's ever been done. But it's quite cool, isn't it? I like the idea in the background while the writer's room is working out, you know, what the show is going to be about. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's really good. So you were saying that Queen was one of your favourite bands. Yeah. Oh, I love Queen. And did you ever get to see them in concert? I got to see Rubbish Queen, you know, like... um, (laughs) At the time they were, they were all gone. What, was, that Adam, was that what Adam Lambert was it? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. actually last year. And, uh, do you know I still loved it? I, I still loved it because I love Brian May. Yeah, and I love Roger Taylor. You know, and just being in the same room as them, even when it's the hydro and you can't be in that, in, you can't say the same room. It's like saying being in the same country as them because you're so far away. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. I, I put. I took a picture of myself and, you know, Roger Taylor's like a dot in the distance. I'd see at the back of the hydro, right, the worst seats in the house. And uh, But I was still so pleased to be there. It was just so cool to be in the same place as them because I, I loved them since I was five. I mean, I get into Queen when I was five. Yeah. I've got much older brothers. All my brothers are much older than me. And they were into Queen and that got me into Queen. So they were into Queen in their 70s heyday. So then in the 80s, 
when nobody was into Queen, I was wearing Queen badges and stuff in school. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I felt so vindicated at Langley because I remember people in class used to read out stuff from NME about bands they liked. And then they would look at me and read out like a thing derogatory about Queen, right? And I'd be raging, you know, because I love Queen so much. And then I remember they stole Live Aid. And I remember just feeling so vindicated. It was it was a real Cobra Kai moment, you know, when you're <laughs> <laughs> it And I just came in on the Monday morning after live made like a king. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was the only guy who liked Queen. <laughs> yeah, they can't all start pretending like Queen now. I bet you were kind of saying, oh, you Johnny Come Lately Queen fans. No, I fuck all right. Freddy Come Lately. Freddy Come Lately. <laughs> Mark, Freddy. can I ask you, I, I, I tread cautiously with this question. I mean, no offence. And the only reason I'm asking, I'm 40. And yeah. I have felt this probably the last three gigs that I've been at. Yeah. So I was going to ask how you felt being at Queen because the last three gigs I've been at, I felt old and out of place. Oh, uh, not at a Queen gig? Are you not joking? at a Queen gig. No, <laughs> well, maybe I'm going, going to the wrong there, gigs. But, <laughs> but I was the youngest guy by about 20 years. Like the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the beauty is like, well, a lot of my pals are, you know, they'll be obviously my age and they're into contemporary bands. You know, it's the guys who are still really in the music scene. They were like this at school. They're like this now. If a band, a new band is playing in the Barrowlands, they are there, you know, making sure they're catching all the new bands. So they are the oldest person there by 20 years, right? Whereas I'm into like Burt Bacharach and things like that, right? So to, I, I went to see Burt Bacharach and somebody died in the concert, just a, a few seats away from me. That's, that, that's how old... How bad was the performance? Was that because you were climbing over them to get out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll I'll tell you super quickly what happened. It was was a few years back, and I went to see Barbacarac, and it was... (laughs) And I remember just looking around, and my wife and I were considerably younger than everybody else there. I mean, really by quite a margin. You know, I was in my early 40s. They were all... Everybody was 70-plus, really, you know? And, and there were some much older people. There was, like, people really shuffling in and everything, you know? And it always makes you feel quite good that you always... It's quite good to be the youngest guy in the room, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. But, but then I remember everybody... That kind of murmur along the row, and everybody's like, what's going on down there? And I saw paramedics coming, and they were trying to restart someone's heart further along the, the row, and I was like, oh, my God. And then they put screen around the person. Oh. Right? And it, didn't, it didn't look good at all. And like I then the body get taken away, and then there was this murmur again, and then there was half an hour. The concert was pushed back half an hour and everything, you know. And then Bert Bacharach came out, and one of the first things he said, you know, to the audience was he said, I I hear there was uh, you know, a, a terrible story happened here this evening, you know, God rest his soul. And then he just continued on with the, the show, you know, and you realize when you're that age, you must have people dying in your concerts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's so. So yeah, I, ne- I, ne- I never feel. I never feel old at these, at these things. <laughs> Justified answer. Great. One. That's fair enough. It's just me. <laughs> Next concert I go to, I'll be a Burt Bacharach one. I'll feel great. <laughs> We're just- but I'm trying to think. I mean, the only concert I've been to, I've never been to a concert to see someone who's younger than me. Because yeah. when I used to go and see, when you know, the first concert I ever went to was the Stranglers. I saw the Sex Pistols. I saw Morrissey. Um, I never saw the Smiths. You know, so everybody was a good 10, 20, 30 years old than me. Yeah. And then as I as I've got older, they're obviously super old. You know, um, but the closest I've ever came to my own age was Kylie. 
<laughs> and it was my, and she's a couple of years older than me, I think. But like, uh, I, I, I went along with my oldest daughter, and uh, it was a nightmare. It was actually, oh, I think yeah. it was like the worst night of my life. But she, she loved it, and yeah. you, know, you can sort of get enjoyment out of something by osmosis, you know. And, but it was hard going. I've got to say, like everybody had cowboy hats on them, and that's put a cowboy hat on. And my daughter was, <laughs> and everybody was dancing, right? And it was, and everybody was loving it except me. And, my, oh, and I was just sort of standing like that. And I was like, why don't we all just sit down? And then we do the whole concert. You know, why don't we all just sit down and everybody was saying, get up and enjoy yourself. And, and I had the hat on and my daughter was going, dad, dance like everybody else, dance like everybody else. You can gradually go along with it. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, well, I think it's interesting though, because especially when we were growing up, Mark, um, I'm a wee bit older than you by two months or something. <laughs> I've been 55 a few times now. <laughs> and, uh, but it was very tribal back in these days, music. Yeah. If you if you liked heavy rock, you couldn't like punk yeah. rock. Yeah, yeah very much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 10 years before us, mm -hmm. if you liked the Beatles, you couldn't like the Stones. And 10 years afterwards, you couldn't like Blur if you liked Oasis. That's it, absolutely. Yeah. So I, we keep thinking to ourselves, it's all come full circle Vital fans or music fans can mm -hmm. like anything they want now. Uh, like yeah, yeah, Kylie yeah. and Queen and Led Zeppelin all in the same breath. And oh, I, yeah, yeah. Eyelid. Now it's almost That's like really interesting. It's yeah. really changed. Yeah, you know? unless You're it's right. still the same at school, but I don't think it is. I think I don't think so. No, yeah. you you wouldn't have had the balls back at school to talk about like let's say if you know if the age was right. Uh, a 12 year old boy going into school and go, hey guys, you heard the new Kylie tune? Oh, I've got the album. <laughs> I mean, we all know your name walking home in one piece. You know, that's just a fact. Certainly not the schools that we probably went to. But nowadays, it's, it's all right. Yeah, it's it's yeah. fine to like anything. I think if I remember right, um, Mark, you probably knew uh, Pat Kane from Hue and Cry from Coldplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat lived in my town. Oh, is that? Aye, that's right. Yeah. Aye. Did you know him as such? Yeah, yeah, I know Pat well, yeah. yeah. Uh, Pat's, there was three boys in the family. Um, Pat is the oldest, then there's Greg, who was in Hue and Cry, and then there's uh, Gary John, who was in my year at school. Yeah. So Pat, I think, was maybe five, five, six years older than me. Right. Maybe six. And uh, Greg, Greg's a couple of years younger, and then Gary John's my age. Yeah. And Gary John plays with the Proclaimers, and he's, you of know, course, he's yeah. done great and everything over yeah, the years. Yeah. But, like, um, but they're a really nice family. His mum was the midwife. Who delivered everybody in Cobridge? <laughs> and every time she would walk down the street, she would say hello to everybody because she delivered. Oh, uh, yeah. She's seen everything, warts and all. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so it comes to, because um, obviously a lot of people listening uh, will know that you um, have done the odd comic in the past and the yeah. odd film. Uh, you've made a few films. I think whatever I'm thinking, Wanted was the first film, the first of your comics that get made into a film. First of all, ones, yeah, yeah, that's 2008. So yeah. I wrote it in 2003, sold it in 2004, then it was a film in 2008. Yes, that was, that was my first one. And that was Angelina Jolie. It was, it was. Yeah. I, had no, I had no idea how famous she was until I was on the set. It was really weird. Like, I sort of missed the phenomenon. This was back in two, early 2007. And I remember I didn't realise, I knew she was famous. You know, I'd, I'd obviously heard of her and seen her in a couple of things. But you know, but remember she was like so famous for a wee while, like just mm -hmm. crazy famous. Yeah, she got to get Brad Pitt and everything. And I, uh, I remember stopping in Amsterdam on the way out to see the set in Prague when I was flying out, and I knew it was a big deal having Angelina and all that. And Morgan Freeman was in it, and James McAvoy was yeah. a very new actor at the time. But I remember stopping in Amsterdam airport and just had an hour to kill or something. And I walked into the wee, uh, the wee news agent. And it was a whole wall of magazines, right? So you're, you're talking like 10 shelves high and going on for 
you know, 100 feet. And she was on the cover of nearly everything. And, I, and it, actually, it was so interesting because I just looked at it and thought, she's really famous. And she was on the front of like Crossword Puzzler. She was on the front of Personal Computer Magazine and things. It just, <laughs> we all had a reason Evangelina on the front cover. Yeah, thought, yeah, this, yeah. This movie could be quite big. This is quite yeah. Remember, we were trying to. We were we were all having in our in our pub chat. We were all surmising that uh, or speculating that she could get a job at the local kebab shop, and we could all stumble in, pissed out our faces afterwards, and say, "Angelina, plenty of chili sauce stall, will you?" <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think the, the, the guys. The theory, this was our drinking club. We get the dads. The theory was that because I now knew her a bit through the film, we should get her out for a night out <laughs> and make her eat a kebab. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea was, I think somebody speculated she might fall in love with Glasgow so much that she might want to stay forever and work in the place where we got our kebabs after. The, I have no <laughs> idea how this chat came about. <laughs> it never happens. It never actually happens. <laughs> you know, without going into too much detail, because we can't, I do know how you came across such a chat because you boys have a certain tone of chat that's just unacceptable to have only in your little private group. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying I've heard any stories and I'm not quoting them. But Mark, don't lie. That's how you got onto that conversation. A couple of babies and your tone of, of humor. That's what it was. I was saying to I say to the guys that uh, you did kick ass as well. Mm. And um I mean obviously that was would that be like a big breakthrough for you, that one? Well, Wanted made more money actually. Wanted Wanted was uh, it cost 70 million and it made 342 million. Wow. You know, so it did really yeah. well. Um Kick Ass was a smaller film, but weirdly, culturally bigger. You know, I mean, it costs nothing. Kickass costs twenty-eight million, which is like, I mean, that's a a couple of episodes of one of our TV shows, practically. You know, yeah. like three mm -hmm. episodes maybe of one of our shows. Um, but it, it, it just seemed to hit the right spot. You know, people really liked it. It got really good reviews. And the weirdest thing for me was when I knew it had caught on was Halloween that year. I remember just out walking about, and I saw two different girls dressed as Hit Girl. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was weird, you know, suddenly something that was just in your mind as an idea. It was like a bit like, I remember Paul McCartney talking about his first hit. He heard the milkman whistling whenever it was early in the morning, he could hear him whistling. And it was quite weird. Something that was in your head was suddenly in the public domain. Yeah. It was really yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. I kind of remember you writing uh, Kick-Ass, and I, I, I remember, memory plays tricks on you, but I'm sure I remember you being very pleased with it when it was done. You were thinking it was a really, you were very proud of it, if I remember right. As a book or as a film? As a book. As a book. As a book, I was really happy. Yeah, it was good. It worked well. I mean, it was very autobiographical, you know, because it's about a guy who's a comic fan wanting to be a superhero and everything. And I put in loads of stuff from my own life. So every character in it related to my own life in some way. Like, mm -hmm. Girl was based on my oldest kids. The Big Daddy character, Nicholas Cage's character, was based on me being a dad, whereas Kick Ass was based on me being 15, kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it was interesting, you know? Yeah. And I loved it. And I was glad that people liked it because it was my own story almost, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly worked. It certainly worked. And then, of course, you got Kingsman after that. Yeah, the Kingsman films um, is one. I only wrote one book, and it's just they keep making them. Like, um, <laughs> like the, first, the first one I wrote, Kingsman The Secret Service. And then um, I was busy doing my Netflix deal at the time because I was selling the company for a year before the company actually went public. Um, but 
the second film was getting made at that time. So I, I was a producer on it, but I had virtually no input, you know, because uh, I was I was busy elsewhere. So I had nothing to do with the story or anything. Sure. And now there's a prequel that's been made as well, you know, that again, because yeah. I'm at Netflix, I, I can't work on. Uh, I've seen it, obviously, but COVID has meant it's been put back. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a year ago, and it's not coming out until about August. Yeah. Nobody's been in cinemas for a year. What's yeah. really interesting is I can't wait for the Oscars this year because the only film that got released last year was Sonic the Hedgehog. So Sonic the Hedgehog is going to clean up. Clean up. Magic. <laughs> 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 but King, Kingsman must be quite good for you though, because that's another example of something that was in your head, uh, getting a life of its own beyond yeah. beyond yeah. your your touch, if you like. Well, it is. It's, it is funny. It's a bit like having a baby, you know. It's like yeah. something something actually being a three dimensional thing that lives beyond you, you know, yeah. that actually lives beyond you is quite a weird a weird thing. Like somebody could come along in fifty years time you know, when I'm gone and do a whole new version of Kick-Ass, yeah. the way that James Bond outlived Ian Fleming. Yes, you know, that's right. That's right. That your, your, your thing could be revamped in 200 years' time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so so that, that is, but I love that, you know, I love the idea that, you know, somebody at some point you'll never meet loves your stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very good. And when it comes to um, musical instruments, have you ever had a go at any musical instrument? Apart oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a thing in school. Did you guys ever have this? It was called the Bentley Test. The Bentley really? test? No. no. They no. did a thing, and it was like some Darwinian struggle, right, in schools where they had a, a, a music expert, or like a musicologist or something, come out to your school and see if you could differentiate between notes. And they would, they had a huge big tape recorder that showed up at the school. It was like the X-Men or something, and they were trying to figure out who had powers in the class, right? And they were saying, can you tell the difference between this note and this note? And they tested us all, but they all to write it down. And I scored like really high in it, which was weird, right, because I, I was only anti-queen. <laughs> and and I'd fair music and all that, right? But like I scored really high in this test. So it meant that they actually funded us to learn a musical instrument because they thought any kids um that got over a certain number they thought might be quite talented and we will fund you playing an instrument. And it was the biggest mistake ever we made. It's all right. So I was given a thing called the baritone. Do you know what the baritone is? Yeah. It's kind of like a tuba, you know, it's yeah. a tuba-like thing, right? So I, I got the baritone. So immediately it's a nightmare because it's it's like carrying a couch, right? And, <laughs> it was a and I used to get the bus to school. It was a nightmare and everything. And, and I never practiced it. And every week, and I, I quite liked it because you'd maybe get out of maths or something to go for an hour and do your baritone lesson with this really nice man in the music department who I really liked. And he used to always say to me, Mark, have you practiced at all since the last lesson? And I'd be like, yes. <laughs> really? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> so the, the only practice I got was the one hour a week with him, right? And he would say, you have to, every night, you have to go home and do like five hours on your baritone. Eh. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I can't. I'm not that interested, you know? So, like, so after about a, maybe a year, they realized I, I was not progressing and they bumped me to some other kid, you know? But but that was it. That's as close as I ever got to an instrument. It was, you, know, you know, in terms of the things that's going to get people laid, yeah, you know, like, like I think like guitar's high, drumming is high. Drums, yeah. The banjo, you're you're down quite low. Like the banjo and stuff like that, right? The baritone is beneath everything. <laughs> it's a cock block. That's it. It's too late, hey, baby. <laughs> Look at my baritone. Right, give this a blow. Give this a blow. Go, go, edit. The only Bentley test I did at our school was some rich guy would come and drive over us in a Bentley, and if we lived, we could go to the next class. <laughs> 
was a um, Burlington boys fifty pound notes kind of thing. You know? <laughs> oh, so what about your your own your kids? Do they play music? No, actually, no. The, the, like, um, I'm trying to think. They're good singers. They're all good singers, actually. But I think generally, you see your parents do something, then you copy it. You know, so my kids can tell you about a 1957 Aquaman comic and things like that. They yeah, really yeah, yeah. Like, that's yeah, amazing. Actually. That, that encyclopedic knowledge that my my middle kid in particular is really, really adept to all this stuff. But my my kids in general, they kind of like music, kind of like me. I think they can sort of fake it. And they walk around the house, <laughs> they, they walk around the house singing Disney songs. They know all the words to all that stuff and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. not their passion. But what's really weird though is sometimes it can actually surprise you that your kids can be into something you're not. Like it's amazing how much you do influence your children, even when you don't mean to. You mm-hmm. know, the kids, without me trying, have really get into the things I love. Like they love Ray Harryhausen movies. They love superheroes. You know, they're just they're into what I'm into, which is great. But my brother, one of my brothers, I've got four brothers, and one of them, totally non-musical, can't sing, can't play instruments, not really in any bands. And his two children are musical prodigies. You know, they're, oh, they're, yeah, they're really, yeah. really good. Yeah. And they were playing in bands when they were very young teenagers and everything, you know. Sure. So it's really weird. I don't, I don't know where, where that comes from. Well, your brother Jim's a great singer, isn't he? Well, there is in the family. I mean, it is there. That's my brother Bobby. Um, my brother Eddie um, is a brilliant drummer. And my brother Jim's an excellent singer. And Peter's a very good singer. My sister Rose is quite a good singer as well. You know, like, uh, to be as <laughs> dramatic as they'll be. But the only one that really properly played an instrument was Eddie uh, on the drums. And Eddie was a great drummer. And he, he, he lived the life I wanted to live when I was a kid. I always thought it seemed so cool because he was a drummer in a band. And sometimes he even just get paid in beer. Having his friends would get paid in beer and they'd just yeah. get a lock in and sit and drink to five o'clock in the morning in the place they'd been uh, playing <laughs> and then get off with somebody. You know, they just. Uh, yeah, Eddie was always like, I think he went out with like three girls that were on the side of the tenant's lager beer can. <laughs> But like he, he always did really brilliantly, and as a kid, I used to be like, that, "That's an amazing way to live your life." I always thought that seemed great. <laughs> did they ever then pick on you or slag you off, or like, "Oh, look at you, your comics and all the rest"? Well, well, no, so they quite like all that stuff too. No, luckily they, they were really into all that stuff too. So, okay. So yeah. my, my family, like my mum and dad as well, were were really into films, and I didn't realise that everybody's parents wasn't like this, you know. Mm-hmm. So like there'd be like a 1936 David Nevin film on or something like that. And my mum would say, oh, do you know that's actually a remake of a Ronald Coleman film from 12 years before, that kind of thing, you know? And it's and so I picked up all that stuff by osmosis as a kid and so did my brothers. So mm-hmm. my brothers have got this really encyclopedic knowledge of superheroes that they don't really talk about. Like my brother Bobby, for example, he, he, he was 14 years older than me. So when I was five, he was 19. So he would buy me Spider-Man comics when I was five or six because he was a wee bit too embarrassed to buy them himself. So he'd buy them and read them. And then once he'd finished with them, he'd pass them on to me. So my <laughs> brothers have all got that in them, you know, the brothers yeah, have all Yeah, them. yeah. It's quite amazing, isn't it, how we get uh, so a piece of music in a film. Uh-huh. If, it's, if it's in a film, it suddenly gets picked up again. Oh, and yeah, yeah. One of yeah. Mark's favourite directors from memory is um, Tarantino. Oh, mm-hmm. so and Pulp Fiction, yeah, one of the best films ever best made. Best soundtracks yeah. for a film it, ever. It's, it's got that wonderful scene with uh, John Travolta yeah. and is it Uma Thurman? Uma Thurman, yeah. And they're doing that, um, the Chuck, Chuck Berry song, Berry, yeah, 
and yeah. they're doing it at the 50s diner. Uh-huh. I mean, that re- reignited interest, not just in that song or that artist, but that whole that era. whole era, yeah. absolutely. No, a whole era. Yeah, 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 Blues yeah. Brothers has to be the most amazing one because all, all of those Motown people that were in Blues Brothers. Yes, that's right. Ah, uh, 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 yeah, James Brown. But a lot of them were on the verge of Forgotten Brown. They'd, yeah. they'd fallen from favour a bit. And uh-huh. that one movie restarted everything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And you saw those songs showing up in adverts and other films and tv shows and everything and and it was, yeah. it was incredible just a decision made by one filmmaker can change the course of music for the next 10 years yeah great yeah, shout Blues brothers yeah when you're when you're doing your your films and stuff um do you have any like input into the the music or do you kind of let them deal with it Music's the one place I'm colorblind. It really is. I, I, honestly, like they always say to me, like I remember, you know, the, you know, in King, do you remember in Kingsman there's the church fight? Yeah. Call it birth. As originally it was seven minutes. I saw a seven minute cut of that with that fight, and it eventually got pared down to being about three minutes or something, or two two fifty or something. And like, uh, and it's Colin Firth just killing a hundred people. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And there's no dialogue needed, so you just need a really good bit of music over it. And Matthew Bond, the director, so I'm trying to think of a really good. A good song to go over that, you know. And I was, oh, I'm really into Burt Bacharach and all that, you know. Now I was, you know, <laughs> and I, I was giving like lounge music ideas and things. Like and he said, no, it needs to be something a bit rocky. It needs to be like a good guitar solo. And I was like, oh, you heard Queen? Queen's absolutely, you know. So like, I've literally got they're like my two suggestions every time, and everybody they know they can really listen to me on some things, right? Like. If, if there's if there's some scene that's not working, I'll I'll know the line that has to be dubbed out and that you yeah. have to dub in to make that scene really work. Right, I can do all that stuff really well. Or or if something is twenty seven seconds when it should be twenty two, you know, like you just need to clip it down and and, it, and it'll move faster and everything. Yeah. You know, I can do all that stuff. But see, when it comes to music, I'll always make the worst the worst possible. <laughs> you do like I used to always fancy people nobody else fancied as well. I mean, that was another thing. And it's the same, like, I remember I was sitting in a meeting one time and somebody said, oh, you, who'd be really hot for this? Like, who's everybody in it? And I'd always say, you know, like the, the person only I fancy, like nobody else in the world is in it. Like, what? You know? And it's kind of like that with the music as well. I've got weird <laughs> You should take a punt next time because that's actually quite, it's close to what Tarantino does. Yeah. Um, if you think of some of the, 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 the ironic the, thing. Well, yeah, yeah. Like if you think of Reservoir Dogs and the cutting off yeah. the ear, and I mean, what what he does then is he actually pans away from the scene because yeah. it, there was nothing that he could have shown or filmed that would have given you um, a worse impact than what you would have made yeah. up in your mind. And then yeah. he also does this with uh, with certain over violent scenes. He'll choose a song that you would never have thought would be right for it because yeah. so so it might be this brutal horrendous blood spurting murderous scene but then he's got quite a happy jovial sort of plucky tune going along with it and it is, it's done deliberately absolutely yeah. oh, um, so yeah. maybe next time about Bacharach tune actually might work there's another one uh, do you remember face off i think it's the bit where um uh, or I'm at the point I'm forgetting where which one was which at this point yeah. in the film. So, um, but anyway, I think it's Travolta grabs his daughter. So I think at that point he's Nicolas Cage as Travolta yeah. grabs his daughter and he puts the head things on her, you know, the headphones on her yeah. heads with all the shooting and everything. And then you've got this beautiful little lullaby that's yeah. played classically, and it's got and you've got. 
bullets flying, everything, shards everywhere, everything's exploding and people diving and bodies everywhere. And, and then yeah. you've just got this calm, graceful, <laughs> it's a beautiful very good, bit of yeah. classical music. I've actually watched that again. Face Off was bonkers, wasn't it? Face that. Off was brilliant, actually. Yeah, yeah. One of the few great Nicolas Cage movies. <laughs> I, I love Nicolas Cage. He, he is genuinely... My favourite actor I've ever been on a set with. Ever. Yeah, I he's so amazing. He's a genius, actually a genius. Like it's funny whenever uh, first day of filming on Kickass, I remember him doing takes of of there was two scenes on that one day. There was one in the morning, one in the, the afternoon, and he was doing takes of each one, and every take was different with something new and brilliant in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most, most people try their best to get one good take. Uh-huh. He, will give, he will give you twenty great takes, and you, the the problem is everybody sits in the editing suite and says it's all great. What, what do we choose? What direction do we go? And he'll, mm-hmm. he's like an artist or something. This is absolutely amazing. He's nah. Amazing. <laughs> Got a, we've got a great oh, image of him. <laughs> <laughs> Just for you. <laughs> it's one of the best photographs of him. <laughs> oh, He's got a new thing. I think it's actually on Netflix. I, I don't even know if you're involved in it, but it's a, a, a programme about swearing. It's a documentary yeah, about swearing. No? And uh, he presents it, and it's actually brilliant. So each episode, I think it's a half-hour episode, uh, uh, each one's about a specific word. So obviously we've got... You know, fuck, we've got shit, uh, I think, bitch. Uh, and he goes into the specifics, the history, um, when it's used at its best, who owns that word? Like, we all know who owns the word mother effer, you know, <laughs> without anybody thinking it's Samuel Jackson, you know. <laughs> On paper, he owns that. Um, and it's actually a really good programme, and it really brings out his personality. And I don't think anybody could have pulled it off or got away with the amount of swearing because he's got to use that swear word, of yeah. course, all the time during the uh, the, the programme. Yeah. And there's nobody that could yeah. pull it off relentlessly doing it. And the tone that he does as many yeah. times... He's, he's actually pretty class um, because it's real Nicolas Cage there. He's not acting. He's, yeah. he's, he's him with a bit of extra boot persona. He's always had a bit of charisma. It's worth checking out it? if you haven't seen That's it. The history, history of yeah. swear words, I think there's five episodes. I do love, I'd love to see him in another great film. I mean, he's done, he's done a, some interesting stuff recently, though, you know, like, but because um, he, he does the really out there stuff now. He's at a really interesting stage in his career. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm long predicted. I think he's due a mega comeback, like a mega comeback. Yeah. I, I predicted Robert Pattinson five years ago. I said, in five years' time, that guy is going to be a mega. He's going to be a brilliant Batman, and he actually was. It was it was my best ever prediction. Wow, and yeah. I, I, my prediction with Nicolas Cage is, I think, like he's he's sort of been out the big game for a wee while, you know. And I think <laughs> when he comes back, people will be like, ah, oh, this is why we love Nicolas Cage. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does go in cycles. What are you working on just now, Mark? Well, Jupiter's Legacy is our first show um, today, as we record this. It just went live for the teaser trailer um, up on uh, on the internet. So literally about two hours ago, it went live. Wow. Um, we've been working on it for two, over two years. Um, so that comes out, and I can, I can now say, because it got announced today, May the 7th, our wedding anniversary, actually. <laughs> um, no launches on our wedding anniversary. So that has to be, it was luckier for me than it was for my wife that day. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, but it's, uh, you know, I'm really happy with it. It's great. It's a big Godfather 2 style superhero drama. Mm. And I think you'll be into it, Bob. It's, it's, got, it's like Once Upon a Time in America or Godfather yeah. 2, but it's oh. half the story set in 1929 and half of it's set in the present day. And it's all about a guy in 1929 losing everything and hearing about a mysterious island in the middle of the Atlantic that doesn't exist. 
and he has to get, he's having dreams about it and all that. A bit like Roy Neary and Richard Dreyfuss's character yeah. in the uh, Close mm-hmm. Encounters. Yeah, yeah. And he has to get out, he has to somehow get people to go in a boat and go out to this place that doesn't exist and what he finds when he gets there, you know? So it's a big superhero drama that starts there in 1929 and comes right up to date, like a big present day thing, and then goes to the end of time. So it's a big 2001 style epic. It's everything I've always wanted to do in a superhero drama, all in yeah. one, one show. So how long did that take you to write? I was, I'm still writing actually, like um, it's got six volumes. Right. And I, I wrote volumes one to four between 2012 and 2015. And then I've been doing other things for years. And now I've got the final two volumes to do. So I'm going to release the first, the volume five will be released in June, just after the show. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be, it'll be huge because, you know, we'll get tens of millions of viewers watching the show. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll pick up the book. So I purposely, as soon as I knew the, the show was getting made three years ago or whatever, you know, I thought, right, I'll hold that book back, you know, and bring it out a wee bit later. Yeah. Is that maybe yeah. like a guided trend by Netflix? Because like, uh, I don't know if I can mention it. I'll say it. And if you're there, we can cut it out. But you see, they've just come out with WandaVision, which is yeah. actually a, a superhero Marvel thing set in the 60s. Um and that's quite interesting. So you're saying this one is now sort of set in the, in the 20s. It's set um, all over time, actually, you know. So ah, okay. One Division's actually over, it's a Marvel show, so it's over on Disney+. Plus. One Division's oh, over yeah. Disney. Uh, Netflix, this is the first Netflix-owned drama ever, you know, a superhero drama ever. Um, they, they used to license four of the Marvel things years back, uh, but they're all the way now because yeah. Marvel uh, have got Disney. They get bought by Disney. Um, so they brought me in once they lost Marvel to kind of create all the ah, you know? brilliant. So, of course, so the first one of those is Jupiter's Legacy. You know, then the next one I do is a horror thing. Then I've got a spy thing. Then another superhero thing. You know, so uh, I'm replacing Marvel for them, hopefully, mm. as well. Horror so, ones. But it's interesting because superhero stuff is so um, incredibly. Popularized now that people can actually handle quite weird stuff. Yeah, you have to yeah, yeah. Twenty years ago, even something like Spider-Man seemed radical. Twenty years ago, just mm-hmm. a wee guy getting powers and fighting the Green Goblin, like that was a that was quite risky back then because that stuff tended not to work. But now you can get super experimental with this stuff. You know, like a show like One Division or something like Jupiter's Legacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even five years ago, I don't think audiences could have handled it. But that, I mean, a superhero drama we. 20 or 30 big characters across a big ensemble cast set over 1929 and the present day. We have flashback and flash forwards, Godfather 2 structure. That's all about the meaning of human existence and where we all came from, like where the human species came from and all that, you know, all tied into a big superhero drama. It's yeah. like we'd never have been able to do this even five years ago, I think. Well, what do you think is the, um, the attraction of superheroes, uh, both in terms of films and just culturally, generally, because it seems to come and go, but it seems to have been come back and stayed back for a good while now. Well, it's interesting. I mean, my, my stock answer for this is very simple, which is that we superheroes do really well in tough times. So if there's a war or there's an economic recession, superheroes do well. So they were created in the Nazi era. You know, they were created in World War II, the lead up to World War II. Between 1938 and 1943, nearly all the superheroes were created that you've heard of from DC Comics. Then Marvel, it was in the Cold War, um, really early 1960s. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, a year on either side of the Cuban Missile Crisis, nearly all the Marvel characters were created, and all of the characters were about atomic energy. Spider-Man was bitten by something radioactive, the Hulk was a radioactive accident. So it was a subconscious nuclear fear of Armageddon, really, that, that, that informed everything. So tough times, um, and what we've had really since September 2000, 
uh, in one, is a perpetual state of war and a perpetual state of security anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think people quite like the idea of being coddled by something that isn't real. You know, yeah. the idea of something that's going to look after you that comes down from the sky. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. a bit comforting about superheroes in tough times like that. And then compound that since 2008 with a sort of economic recession and a decade of austerity and everything. I think it's no accident that the superhero stuff went from being 400 million gross in movies to one in two billion gross yeah, in movies. Yeah. Once you've got anxiety over security mixed in with economic anxiety, it was crazy. But then somebody said to me the other day, I can't remember who it was, it might have been one of my kids. And it was the idea that, which I hadn't even considered, is that people love the myth stories. You know, they love the idea of Hercules or Samson and, and you know, Mercury and all these things, Zeus. They love these ancient myth stories that have been around really since Babylonian times, you know, they've been around for 11,000 years. And I'd never considered this. But religion kind of took the place of that really for, for a long time, you know, as these things were tied to ancient religions. Um, but as religion has declined in the West, maybe people are looking for something else now for the mythical characters. Yeah. So instead of God or Jesus or whatever, you have Superman and Batman fill in the same archetypes yeah. in people's lives. So it's a, it's a, a supernatural, otherworldly realm, you know, of fantastical yeah. characters, you know, that maybe it's what's replaced uh, religion in the more secular society, you know. Do you think maybe, um, I was going to say, do you think maybe Jesus was the first superhero? Uh, he's got a cape. <laughs> did you not write a sequel to the bible before i did that was my very first book when i was 18 i wrote a thing the original title for it was bible 2 and my my my, my theory was the bible is the biggest selling book ever sold right like ever and nobody's got the rights for the sequel so i, I called it my original plan was bible 2 which was, <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> you know, guys, I'm actually sadly going to have to jump because I've got a six o'clock Zoom and that's me straight on to Zoom. Are we good for... No, we're all good. We're all good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll just wrap this up. Thank you very much, Mark. That's absolutely brilliant to give us uh, so much of your Join time. A pleasure. Lots of great chat there. I'm sure we can edit this into a career-ending uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> career-ending one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but thanks again, buddy. And uh, thanks to Lee as well. Absolute pleasure. To as well. yeah, likewise, Bob, I'll see you for our outside outdoor gift at dance. Yes, absolutely. Won't miss it. See you soon. Yeah. See you all later. The best, all right, take care. Again, guys. Cheers. See you later. Guys, all the best then. All Bye. the best. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Yeah. Wow, that was a brilliant show. Thanks so much, Mark, for coming on the show. I thought that was a, I thought it was a really good show. It's great to speak to people who love their music, especially people with a worldwide reputation who never forget that they came into Aberdeen Vinyl Records. Having somebody of that stature is really cool to see, especially when they're getting their fingernails grubby, digging through the crates, and then a big beam on their face just being in our environment. Uh, there's nothing more satisfying. What a guy. What a guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? With all the people that he knows, maybe next time he comes in, he's going to bring in like Samuel L. Jackson, Morgan Freeman, James McAvoy. In fact, maybe they could form a wee band. Could perform live in the shop with uh, Angelina Jolie. She could be the front person. If she's they got a big queue selling out her kebabs. Well, you know, the kebab industry isn't all it's meant to be, you know. There's more to life than selling kebabs. It'll take a lot to persuade her to move away from that into, into rock music, but I think I think it'd be a good move for her. It's something we would all love to see. I'd certainly pay to hear it, that's for sure. First gig will be exclusive to the store. Absolutely. And that's if she hasn't sued us yet. <laughs> 
But yeah, and, and obviously what we really want to do as well is to keep tuning into some of the great stuff that Mark's creating. For example, right now, we've got Jupiter's Legacy available in full on Netflix as of now, as of we speak. Uh, you've got to check this out. This is fantastic. It's one of Netflix's biggest offerings at the moment, and it is truly world-class blockbuster stuff. And thanks again, Mark, for coming on. And we look forward to seeing all you guys next time in the Aberdeen Vinyl Records podcast. And until then... Wax on. Wax off. <laughs> Boom.